because I wanted to begin with introductions. And Arjun, you are our guest. And so why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit more about Connects and then we'll move to the others. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Arjun. I'm one of the founders and project lead of Connext. Um, let's see, uh, I've been in this space since 2016. I became interested in the space because uh, I wanted to find ways to build public goods that are both non-sovereign and non-corporate. Um, I think it's, a, it's really important for the world if you can have um, uh, some types of things that exist, so sort, of, sort of like the internet itself, that exist that are accessible by anybody and that are really untamperable um, by any specific entity. Um, I think that's, that's really how we get to uh, a world that makes sense um, in, in light of things like globalization. Um, I was always really interested in infrastructure. So I, I started, was working on like infrastructure startups um, in the space in 2016 and 2017. Um, and then in May of 2017, I started Connects with my co-founders and Rahul. Um, uh, and uh, the goal was always this technology, um, Ethereum specifically, is, is uh, at the time is like extremely important. Um, and, uh, and let's figure out ways to get it into people's hands faster. Um, and so pretty quickly that led us down the path of scalability because that was really the biggest bottleneck for everybody. Um, and, uh, and we became scalability researchers um, in, in like early 2018. Um, we built one of the first ever L2s on Ethereum. Um, this was a state channel uh, uh, network in partnership with Spankchain um, because Spankchain was the only place that, that actually had any traction in the early days of, of, uh, of the Ethereum community. Um, and then uh, we uh, we ended up, uh, you know, continuing to do research alongside the uh, the, the kind of core scalability community. Um, that's how I met John, for instance. Uh, and then as that as that community started to focus more and more on rollups, we became interested in uh, interoperability, basically communicating between these different rollups um, and between potentially other sovereign chains, uh, finding ways to to make that experience seamless. Um, if if we're moving execution into many parallelized environments. Um, which is actually a really good segue into uh, into this into this talk. Awesome. And then from our side, we have John and Mustafa. Mustafa, please introduce yourself, and then John. Hello, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Celestial Labs, which is a which is the first modular blockchain network. And the basic idea is that we're building a modular consensus and data network to enable anyone. <laughs> to very easily deploy their own blockchain with very minimal overhead without them having to worry about deploying their own consensus network. And they would do so, they can do that by deploying a rollup or more specifically a sovereign rollup on top of Celestia. So I've been thinking quite a lot about um, like bridging in a multi-chain world and I've written some things about this topic and um, this idea of trust minimized bridging and also committee-based bridging. So I'm looking forward to kind of discuss these topics more in this in this space. Sweet, John? Hello everyone, uh, my name is John, uh, also co-founder of Celestia Labs and the Chief Research Officer. So I generally do protocol research and specification. Previously I was at Consensus doing general layer two scalability research where I met a lot of the fine folks that are on this call today. Great. And we'll introduce James when he joins. In the meantime, I will set the stage for the conversation and let's get right into it. So if you are listening to this Twitter space, 
you know something about where the world is going. You can likely see that we are in the midst of a complete tectonic shift in blockchain infrastructure. Much of this innovation is driven by deep frustrations with monolithic chains. In a single word, that change can be summed up in the word modular. And many are saying that modular is now a movement where we're seeing early signs of a new culture, values, and even customs. Lately, what has caught my interest is the intersection of interoperability and modular blockchains. I found myself asking the question, what will the future of secure bridging and cross-communication actually look and feel like in the modular world? Gents, I'm intensely curious about the changes that are going on right now at this exact moment in time in regards to that intersection that I just described. Specifically, I want to go deep on the trends and forces at play that are obvious and not so obvious. And I want to cover a wide range of topics. For example, I want to go into clusters, optimistic bridging, token fragmentation, bridge failure. We'll talk a little bit about modular interoperability, systemic risks, the whole nine yards. And what better way to just explore all this stuff through a true meeting of the minds with Arjun from Connext, James from Nomad, and then myself and John. Um, Arjun, on the 24th of January, you and Nomad announced a strategic partnership introducing the modular interoperability stack. Why don't we start off with you? Um, can you introduce the concept of modular interoperability and how it fits into the modular blockchain thesis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I do that, let me just give like a really, really high level background on like what Connects is right now and then what Nomad is right now and then how those two things really like fit together. Um, so Connext at the moment is a liquidity network, um, cross-chain liquidity network. Basically what this means is that we have a network of LPs called routers that hold pools of funds on different chains um, and using a, a technique that is very similar to atomic swaps uh, allow users to swap, you know, kind of like one for one assets across chains. Um, but from a from a user experience perspective, this doesn't look like a swap. It just looks like a transfer of funds. Um, but the the goal is that the user ends up with the right asset on the right chain, uh, on the right destination chain for a fairly minimal amount of uh, of fees and uh, and almost no trust. Um, and this is this is a model that has been like explored for a very very long time. Um, we have optimized the shit out of it, but um, it is it is something that like we've understood the trust considerations around for for quite a while. Um, uh, Nomad, on the other hand, is a is a is a completely novel mechanism for uh, for interoperability, and it's it's specifically targeted around more generalized message passing. So, uh, you know, what we do with Connects, which is atomic, sort of more of like an atomic swap style thing, um, uh, what we call like a locally verified mechanism for bridging. Um, that that mechanism is trust minimized and it's easy to deploy places, but it's not, uh, we can't really use it for like arbitrary data passing, only some kinds of data passing. Um, whereas Nomad on the other hand is the other end of the spectrum where it is specifically designed for, to allow for passing any kind of message between chains. So allowing for one contract to read the state of another contract, for instance, um, which, is, which is a really, really important and difficult problem. Now, the way that historically, the way that this has been done is by using something called, uh, well, one of two ways, either through like light client header verification, like IBC, um, where you have one chain actually running a light client of another chain. Um, and of course, this is difficult to do because it's custom to each chain. And each time you have a new consensus model or anything like that, you have to, to come up with an entirely new strategy for how to do it. Um, or uh, through what is pretty much the most dominant paradigm right now in Interop, which is uh, using an external set of verifiers, so using like a POS network or an MPC network, or uh, you know, uh, in in like layer zero's case, a, like a two uh, 
POS networks. Um, but the, the idea is like, um, uh, you have some external set of parties that are res is responsible for relaying the data across chains and verifying it. Now what Nomad does kind of differently is that it, it says, uh, instead of, instead of uh, just trusting some set of third parties to relay this data across chains, it uses an optimistic pattern similar to an optimistic rollup where you relay the data across chains optimistically, and then you have a period of 30 minutes within which people can dispute. And, uh, and, and if they dispute and found, find that fraud has actually occurred uh, when relaying that data, then the, the entity that signed off on relaying the data, the, the updater in Nomad system, um, ends up getting slashed. Um, so the, the, the security model is like more similar to, to that of something like a rollup than to uh, something like a sidechain, which is true for most of the other kind of externally verified mechanisms. Now, the, the, the trade-off for Nomad, uh, because there are always trade-offs, the trade-off for Nomad is latency, right? You have this 30-minute window within which uh, you can't really do anything with that data because you can't really trust that it's accurate. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, on the other hand, you have Connects where, um, you know, these transactions are near instant, but they have limited functionality. They have limited, uh, uh, they have, you have a limited ability to pass around data between chains. So our, our thesis around modular interoperability is that uh, similar to the modular blockchain stack, where you can take different parts of the system, uh, different like kind of pieces of of what make blockchains important and what make them work, um, and separate them out into their own independent networks. Um, so separate out data, separate out execution, and by having all of these things be built in a modular way, you can kind of offset the trade-offs of, you know, trying to build this like single monolithic blockchain that has this really complicated trade-off space around around like the the scalability trilemma that Vitalik has talked about. And similar to that, um, we think we can, we, we can do the exact same thing with, with uh, interoperability, where we use you know, Nomad as the, the core message passing layer to, to pass uh, data between chains. And then you use Connext as the liquidity layer. The, the, that gives you the ability to get the right kinds of assets on the, on the receiving chain. Um, you're able to, you know, while Nomad messages would have historically taken 30 minutes, you're able to short circuit them in any user facing case and make sure that they happen almost instantly through Connext. And, uh, but you still end up getting the like core security guarantees of Nomad and, and really by extension of the underlying chains. Thanks. I want to kick it over to the Celestia guys. Uh, guys, react to me. Like, tell me about how you feel about this modular interoperability thing that Arjun is talking about. Any trends and forces at play that we'll have to um, take into consideration or things that we cannot ignore, but just give me your general points of view. Um, yes, yeah, so I think... I think one thing that might be helpful to the listeners here um, is to kind of explain this difference between what Connects and Nomad are trying to achieve in the sense that um, there's this idea of a lock and mint protocol and a, and a swap protocol. Um, and correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong, Arjun. But so like with Connects, you have instant transfers, right? Because it's, it's, it's just, you can swap tokens. So with Connects, you can, you can basically swap tokens um, like that already exist on two chains. So like if you have two chains, like chain A and B, and some tokens exist on there, you can basically swap those tokens like instantly. Um, yes. But but what if, but but then the question is like what if tokens don't what if the token what if you want to mint new tokens in that into that chain? So like, let's say you have a bunch of tokens on chain A, and you want to move them to chain B. Um. But like uh, there's no there isn't any existing tokens of your type on chain B. So you have to kind of like transfer, you can't just swap something on chain B to get to move those tokens to chain B. You have to actually move them to chain B. 
like mint knew of those tokens on chain B. And um that's referred to as lock and mint protocol because you have to lock you have to lock those tokens on chain A and then mint them on chain B. And you're basically moving them to chain B rather than swapping them for existing tokens. And as far as I can understand, that's where Nomad fits in. And that's where um like you have this um thirty minute uh, with uh, like latency. Because you would only use Nomad if there's not enough liquidity on both chains so that you can just swap those tokens instantly. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and I'm actually really oh sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no uh, definitely finish your thought. Yeah, so I was saying um that actually fits in really well with the kind of like a roll-up centric or modular uh, blockchain stack. Because the way that I see, because with roll-ups, the way I see that um, like roll-up bridging working, working in the future, um, like at the moment, there's quite a lot of like people com- like critical of optimistic roll-ups, for example, uh, because they have this like one week withdrawal period. Um, for example, like if you withdraw the tokens to Ethereum, um, like if you want to withdraw tokens to Ethereum from a roll-up, you have to wait a one week fraud proof period. But with this, like, but you don't actually have to do that. If you just swap the tokens, um, like an, a naive way of doing that would just be like uh, deposit the tokens to an exchange, uh, swap them for the tokens, and then withdraw them to uh, the chain that you want using the exchange's withdrawal feature. Um, and Connex is kind of doing that, but in a decentralized and more trust minimized way by having like a kind of this, um, like a cryptographic swapping protocol. Uh, which basically does the same thing as if, like, let's say you want, let's say you want to move Ethereum to Polygon. Um, instead of using the official Polygon bridge, you can like deposit Ethereum into like Coinbase or like maybe not Coinbase. I don't know if Coinbase supports Polygon, but let's suppose it did. You just deposit the ETH to, to Coinbase and then you withdraw it from Coinbase to the Polygon chain. Um, so, but that's basically that's basically what Connects does, uh, like, a, but in a decentralized way. And so I see, um. Like with rollups and with like uh, multi-chain bridging in the future, the way that I see it working is that you have like a like one official or enshrined uh, like lock and mint bridge where you move the tokens across those assets that is completely trust minimized. Um, that has that has a high latency, high latency period. It might be expensive to use, but um, you only have to, but but only like liquidity providers would use that bridge. Like the actual users themselves don't actually use don't actually swap tokens to their official bridge, but just use atomic swap um, between chain A and chain B, rather than going through the official bridge, which is only should be used by like liquidity providers and whales effectively. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm actually I'm really glad that you brought up this example uh, of of tokens and like token transfers and token minting because that is that is actually the the simplest most quintessential example of the sort of. Uh, the the kind of domain space that Connects and Nomad occupy, where like you have uh, with Connects, you have you know uh, like the the fundamental assumption it, again in the in the token transfer case specifically, the fundamental assumption is that like there that some liquidity exists on the receiving chain. You have to have some minted representation. So if you know if you're transferring, if you wanna you know if you're on uh, Polygon and you want to get to you know XYZ chain and XYZ chain doesn't have a USDC representation. Uh, there's really no way to use Connects to swap USDC into that chain. We we need somebody to mint those assets first, um, and that is really where Nomad comes in. Is that like Nomad has the capacity to, with minimal trust, uh, mint um, representative assets on a chain where they don't exist yet. Um, and uh, and so for from from the you know from our perspective, for instance, with Moonbeam, like 
this was a, a core part of how we've like collaborated is that like exactly as you said, you know, liquidity providers, market makers, other institutional people who are trying to mint, you know, 10, 20 million dollars of liquidity at a time will do that through Nomad. Um, they'll m migrate that liquidity from Ethereum or from some other chain to Moonbeam. And then uh, they will now, uh, you know, now that liquidity is available, some of it can end up in Connext and that can be that can be swapped over for users. And so the users still get this like less than two minute turnaround time, very cheap swap that can go from any other chain. Um, but you still have this this like safe mechanism to, to mint tokens. Now it definitely gets a bit more complicated than that. Um, I think we'll, we'll certainly touch on like inter and intra cluster communication in the future of, in, in like at some point on this in the space. Um, and I, I think there's like a lot of really interesting things that we can do there around, you know, like Nomad may be quite possibly the best inter cluster communication option that there is. Um, and, but at the same time, there are certainly instances where you may want to use like something more native um, for the intra-cluster piece. So like, you know, use a roll-up Ambi um, in order to, to achieve the best possible security guarantees. And then the other, the other dimension along which it gets more complicated is, is if you're doing something that's more complex than simply transferring tokens. Um, and, uh, and that is entirely possible with Nomad. And in certain cases, it's also possible with Connects. Um, and so, you know, those, those pieces we can kind of dig into in the future as well. James, welcome. Can, do we have your audio? I made it. You made it. Okay, cool. Um, real quickly, introduce yourself, James, and then give us uh, one or two lines on Nomad. Sure. Uh, I'm James Prestwich, one of the co-founders of Nomad. I've been working on you know, cross-chain communication and bridges for uh, for probably four and a half years now. I started off in cross-chain atomic transactions with Bitcoin back in 2017. Um, so uh, Nomad is a new cross-chain protocol that leverages, you know, kind of some of the techniques from optimistic systems uh, in cross-domain communication. Uh, so you get cheaper, you get better throughput uh, at the expense of some latency. Awesome. We had opened up with the concept of modular interoperability. I mentioned the announcement on, the gen on January 24th where uh, Connext and Nomad uh, form this D partnership. And I asked, how does the concept of modular interoperability fit into the broader modular blockchain thesis? And so that's where we're dialoguing on now. Uh, John, we'll kick it over to you, your point of view. I think it's uh, a particularly important subject because uh, as we've seen from the rise of various uh, new blockchains, in the past couple of years, things like Solana, for example, there is a need and a demand for systems beyond just a single chain with a single virtual machine with a single set of constraints and limitations. Uh, there's a demand for exploring the trade-off space, not just in terms of security and decentralization, like maximalists would have you believe, but the trade-off space in terms of things like complexity, in terms of novelty, uh, and so on. There's a large trade-off space that doesn't necessarily involve harming the user's security or harming this notion of decentralization or sovereignty while still being different than you know, a single monolithic chain. Uh, and we are moving towards a world that is increasingly multi-chain that involve multiple blockchains. Ideally, we want these blockchains to share security. For example, if they use a common 
consensus and data availability layer, such as Celestia, or some other mechanism. Uh, and these chains need some mechanism of communicating with each other. And this is where uh, cross-chain communication protocols, such as what uh, connects the Nomad building, are going to be very important in this future. James, one of the, one of the okay. things um, I, I love about this is that uh, what, what people don't realize is that multi-chain systems uh, have always been and will always be the only scaling roadmap. Uh, Ethereum called them shards. We have Cosmos zones. We have Polkadot parachains. But it's all you know different flavors of multi-chain system. Uh, when we talk about cross-chain and cross-domain communication, this isn't something new. This has been an inevitable consequence of the Ethereum roadmap from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. definitely, um, like, in the Solana ecosystem, like, Anatoly's view is basically, like, we should have a single synchronous, like, world computer blockchain that processes transactions synchronously. Um, but I think, like, anyone who's kind of built, you know, a large-scale system before uh, will know that's very difficult to do. Like, if, if you look at the internet itself and... Like it, that's not a synchronous. Like the web itself is not a synchronous system. It's just, it's a bunch of uh, web servers communicating with each other asynchronously. And I think we will end up in the, with a similar kind of um, kind of architecture for Web three as well. Uh, a set of blockchains communicating with each other asynchronously. And does anyone disagree? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask: Does anyone disagree with what Mustafa said, or does anyone see it differently? I, we agree to the extent that, um, uh, and I, I think James and I have talked about this, that like effectively what Connects Plus Nomad is really offering is like, is asynchrony, uh, not really as a service, but really just asynchrony to this, the, to this world, right? Um, like async comms to this world that it, it just fun, fundamentally doesn't exist yet. It's going to be completely new paradigm. Uh, people go, are going to have to completely change the way that they think about things in the same way that we have to completely change development paradigms to be able to build web, web applications. Um, uh, we we ha will have to do the same thing in blockchain development, which is certainly going to be a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> James, I think you were saying something. Yeah, well, uh, I was mostly agreeing and adding colors. The the web is you know not a synchronous system, and it's certainly not a homogenous system. The internet is composed of you know thousands and thousands of independent networks with slightly different uh, software and slightly different semantics and network address translators. And all of these messy you know, like systems, just to resolve the fact that the web is not synchronous, it's not homogenous. You need uh, cross-domain communication in the internet. Uh, and that happens you know, 10 times every time you make a web request without you thinking about it. Question for the group. Celestia and Rollups are examples of a modular blockchain protocols while Nomad and Connext are examples of modular cross-chain communication protocols. Why do you think that modularity as a design principle has emerged in both of these contexts? And do you see this emerging in other areas of the blockchain stack? Can any so of us think, uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Basafa. Um, well, I think, um, I think, I think there's several elements there. I think Arjun also kind of, uh, Elaborated on that well by by talking about the trade-offs. Um, 
like uh, from a from a cross chain perspective, uh, like every like cross chain protocol, every cross chain mechanism has trade offs. Uh, so I mean, obviously, like in the Connect case, uh, like the atomic swap protocol doesn't work if there's no uh, like liquidity, and and that's why you need Nomad. If there is liquidity, but the trade-off there is like Nomad has higher latency. Um, so in that kind of world, it's a way to kind of like beat the trade-offs by having like kind of the best of both worlds in, in, in a way, in the sense that uh, the product, like the, the, because the protocol is modular in the sense that it supports um, multiple uh, like cross-chain mechanisms depending on the use case or what's needed at the time. Um, you can kind of like the, the user can effectively has more has more like flexibility over over the use cases that it needs. And I think from a Celestia perspective, that's also similar in the sense that Celestia decouples consensus from execution and it allows developers to define their own execution environments. And different execution environments have different trade-offs. And, and so the beauty about it is that because Celestia doesn't define a it doesn't enshrine or enforce a specific execution environment for you. The developer has the freedom to choose what whatever execution environment they want based on their use case and what trade-offs they need. Uh, like whether they want to use the EVM, for example, or or use the Cosmos SDK or some other, or Fuel or some other execution environment. Uh, I think to that point, modularity is kind of a inevitable response to these unavoidable trade-offs we see in consensus systems, in cross-chain communication systems. Uh, you know, the response is rather than choosing one point in the trade-off space and planting a flag there and telling everyone they should come join it, we try to design these systems so that users can move throughout the trade-off space uh, based on their use case. I think um, also just to echo uh, James's point from earlier. This is something, it's like modularity is a term that we have started to use in the last year, year and a half uh, around describing these different systems. But like fundamentally what this is, is just like layered architecture for, for distributed systems, right? Um, that's something that, that we've, we've sort of understood for a very long time that like when building networks, um, the, uh, this is true on the internet as well, by the way, um, when building networks, it makes sense to have each protocol or each like level of the stack be hyper-specialized into doing one specific kind of activity rather than trying to build a network that tries to do everything. And the, and the reason for this is that like, it's extremely difficult to constrain risk if you have uh, a lot of like, for instance, if you know, TCP IP was also handling uh, you know, uh, network address translation, um, if it was also handling some of the higher level functionalities of things like HTTP requests, um, you would end up with a, just a much larger surface area that you have to think about in order to do things with the protocol. And in fact, you would also end up with a lot of this like extra stuff that you're not doing anything with most of the time. Um, and I think that's sort of what's, what exists with you know, the whole modular blockchain thesis and the whole modular interoperability thesis is that like fundamentally what we're doing is we're, we're separating everything out into layers. We're saying the sediment layer is responsible for, for economic security. We're saying the data availability layer is responsible for storing data. We're saying um, the execution layer is responsible for you know, executing uh, like a, in, a, in a virtual environment and then like translating that into proofs that can be stored in a data availability layer. And by separating out the responsibilities of each of these different pieces of the puzzle, 
um, we are not only constraining the risk that anything goes wrong, but we are also limiting the, the need for uh, each of these pieces to always be used. And this is really where the scalability piece comes in. I know this is John, something that John has talked about a bunch, which is that you don't actually need to have a general purpose VM, uh, the full stack, a general purpose VM and chain running every single type of thing. You, cannot, you should, and in the future we will, hyper-optimize VMs to be specific to certain kinds of activities. Um, and as long as the, the data layer itself and the settlement layer itself are, are the same, you can do that freely with minimal risk and still have the same level of security. And that is how you eke out the best performance, right? Is, is allowing, allowing people at higher levels to optimize um, without affecting any of the core properties of the system and without having to rebuild an entire system. John, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in. Could you repeat the question to refresh uh, the listeners' memories? Yeah. Celestia and Rollups are examples of modular blockchain protocols, while Nomad and Connext are examples of, examples of modular cross-chain communication protocols. Why do you think that modularity as a design principle has emerged in both of these contexts? Do you see this emerging in other areas of the blockchain stack? Yeah, so I would say that... Uh, before the separation of the actual blockchain process uh, kind of became popular uh, into what we currently see today as being the modular blockchain stack, we, you know, we have your consensus layer, data availability layer, your execution layer, and your settlement layer, potentially wrapping some or all of them together into different different layers. Uh, there were a number of projects that did modularity at the implementation level. So an example of this was the Cosmos SDK uh, and the Cosmos, uh, just the, the entire Tendermint and Cosmos development ecosystem, where essentially they, you know, black box the consensus process uh, and they made the specifying the execution semantics modular. Right, they allowed you to just define your own execution semantics, bring your own VM essentially, uh, and consensus would be provided. There's also pro other projects that are also doing something similar. Uh, Avalanche and subnets, for instance, is essentially copying the Cosmos model, uh, where they have you know a consensus uh, consensus stack, the Avalanche consensus stack, and then they're providing some. For now, relatively primitive, but I guess they're in, in development uh, mechanisms for actually developing your own virtual machine. And they have a few currently application-specific VMs that are that are being played around with. Uh, I think they're launching some new Ethereum uh, EVM-based VMs uh, with some tweaks and so on. Uh, but that's an example where uh, the implementation, uh, rather than the like fundamental design, was built around a kind of modular uh, modular design principles. And with the rise of the modular blockchain stack, we've kind of extended this notion, not just to the implementation, but fundamentally to the, the design. And this kind of takes the benefits of modular, the modular implementation and makes them even better. And it takes them even more to an extreme. And what, what are those benefits? Why would, why would the Cosmos SDK be designed like this? Uh, it's because uh, when you make something modular, 
it means that the, whoever uses that system or whoever builds the system doesn't have to know and care about everything. They can only care about a subset of the features and therefore it allows specialization. And as we know, specialization is one way to really eke out maximum performance or maximum anything, really. It's just an, an amazing way to min-max because if someone has to keep in their head how an entire blockchain stack works, that's just fundamentally not scalable, right? The, I don't think there's anyone in the world today that knows how the entirety of a Go Ethereum node works. Uh, just, it's just not humanly possible. It's just too complex. Uh, but it is possible to know, for instance, how the EVM works and not care about the peer-to-peer -peer networking, not care about the consensus protocol, any of those edge cases or anything like that. Many people know entirely how the EVM works. Uh, so this uh, allowing specialization allows uh, allows us to get maximum performance. And this is why I think we've seen uh, the rise of modularity, not just at the design layer, but also even at the implementation layer. I want to move towards clusters. What are the biggest security differences between inner cluster bridging versus intra-cluster bridging? And how do we see that changing in the next 12 months, 24 months? Mustafa, why don't we go with you? Yeah, so this idea of clusters was set out in a blog post I released in October where I was trying to kind of make sense and categorize uh, the communications in the multi-chain ecosystem landscape. And the basic idea is like there isn't really such thing as layer one or layer two or layer three. All there really is is blockchains that bridge to each other. Like conceptually, what is like the layer one and layer two aren't really useful terms um, nowadays. It's more useful to think about what are the trust assumptions between different blockchains. Because layer two is basically a blockchain. Layer one is basically a blockchain. But what different? What why it's called layer two, and what differentiates it is how they bridge with each other, and the trust assumptions um, used by that bridge. So I came up with this idea of like um, intercluster and intracluster communication. So I, I I defined communication between two chains as uh, into two kind of into two categories. Uh, the first category is this idea of a committee-based um, security. And that's kind of like the more traditional bridging mechanisms you would use. For example, like the bridge between Ethereum and Solana that uses Wormhole, for example. That requires a committee and requires you to trust a committee to not steal your funds. Because effectively, it's a committee, the Wormhole Bridge Committee, that signs messages to and from with that bridge to and from um, Solana and Ethereum, and um, and that like that committee could lie about to Ethereum, for example, about how many funds there are in Solana, or what your balances are in Solana, and vice versa. Um, so like it could theoretically steal all the ETH in that bridge. Same with Polygon, right? The Ethereum to Polygon bridge, and um, that's also a committee-based bridge. If I remember correctly, there's like a multi-sig of like a few people. Then if they're compromised, all the ETH on Polygon could potentially be compromised. 
and that's why that's different. That's why Polygon um, it's kind of not is not usually referred to as layer two to Ethereum. It's kind of referred to like Polygon. It's just it's just another layer one. Even though Polygon, for example, the value proposition of Polygon is that it helps to scale Ethereum. All Polygon really is is just another blockchain. It's a fork of Ethereum with Tendermint on top of it, consensus with a kind of like committee based bridge. So that's committee based security and. Um, and then you have this idea of trust-minimized bridging, and that's where rollups come into play. Um, so with rollup chains, if you deploy a rollup chain on Ethereum, for example, um, and you like have a bridge between that rollup chain and Ethereum, then that's what I would describe as the trust-minimized bridge, because even if the operator and the nodes that operate that rollup misbehave and go completely rogue then in theory, they can't steal your funds. And the reason for that is because the Ethereum chain runs a like light client as a smart contract for the rollup. And if your rollup chain has a malicious block producer that in produces invalid blocks, then that can be proven using a, either a fraud proof um, or a ZK proof to prove that the block was valid. And... So this is what I call I kind of this is what I call um, chains that communicate with each other using trust minimized assumption. I call that as an intra cluster communication mechanism, and I call chains that communicate with each other using a committee based assumption as an inter cluster communication. And this is kind of named after like in the internet and intranet. So like with the internet, with the, intra, with the intranet, is basically communication across. Your local network. So, like, if you have an office, um, and like all the computers in the office are connected to the same like local network to the same router, um, they can communicate with each other using the intranet. But to communicate to other computers that are not in the same office, for example, or that are not in the same local network, um, you would use the internet. And so, I kind of apply that concept to um, like the multi-chain ecosystem. And you have like intracluster and intercluster communication. Good overview. Would anyone else like to add on this topic of clusters, inter versus intra, and the changes that you expect to see? Yeah, definitely. Um, back in like 2017, 2018, when people were first investigating and talking about these kinds of things, uh, we came up with a terminology, you know, a hierarchy, uh, which was essentially you have what Mustafa would call committee-based, which is usually a multi-sig. Um, and you have uh, the intra-cluster, the shared security, which we referred to as usually dependent or merged consensus, uh, where the yep. secondary chain is dependent on the primary chain. Uh, so an example, this is rollups, uh, where the Rollups consensus security is dependent on the L1, and the L1 is running a fully verifying uh, rollup client under some assumptions. Uh, and in the middle is uh, where we would put things like IBC, which is based on a relayed uh, light verification. Um, you know, IBC relays don't do full state verification of the remote chain; they only do uh, header chain verification. Um, so uh, I think in 
Mustafa's terminology, the relay and the you know, dependent consensus would both fall as intra-cluster, uh, while the multi-sig or uh, committee-based would be inter-cluster. So I would still define, um, so, uh, so the, with the committee-based, uh, I would still define like, like clients that only verify the headers, like, like, like clients that verify the signatures in the headers to, do, to check that the block headers have consensus. Um, I, I think that's still theoretically committee-based because the only difference is that the committee is simply the chain itself. Um, but the reason why I make that distinction is because like, if you create a new Cosmos zone with one val layer, it's, like, it's, it's potentially even less secure than a, like a third-party committee. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, uh, go ahead. Um, the, so the, by the way, the, the impetus for this is um, just to kind of like uh, give a little bit more context for everybody who's listening to this. Um, the impetus, so this is, this is the same thing that was kind of talked about in Vitalik's like cross-chain, not multi-chain post, um, where he, he was saying like, the, fundamentally there are limits to the security that you can achieve when you have like two chains that have independent validator sets that are uh, inter like communicating with each other. And even if you built the most theoretically secure communication mechanism between each other, like a, you know, like, like IBC, for instance, um, the, the bridge security is, might be foolproof, but the fact that you have two independent chains means that you now are still adding another risk layer. And the, that risk layer is that the, the, one of the chains could get 51% attacked. Um, you could force, uh, you know, a, a fake update on that chain um, that then gets translated to fake funds being sent over over the bridge onto the other chain. And so this is a way to kind of like spoof malicious data in uh, and send it over a bridge and into like a higher security environment like Ethereum. Um, and fundamentally, that is true. There is, there is this fundamental limitation that exists when you have uh, multiple different chains that have their own uh, independent validators. So this exists within Cosmos and, and IBC. Uh, when you create new Cosmos zones, uh, this exists um, you know, this, this do- wouldn't exist in the case of something like Ethereum and rollups, or uh, um, I guess in any, any sort of situation where you have shared security, because in those cases, uh, you would have to, the, the, the risk that you're taking on um, is, is really the risk of the single validator set uh, being attacked. Um, um, now, I, I do, I think that there is a fundamental limitation there, uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the, the like Vitalik kind of conclusion, which is, Okay, we should just not have multiple validator sets. We should have just one, uh, like we should just not have yeah. inter-cluster communication because the reality is people are just going to do it like this. They're going to find ways to do it, and even if those ways are completely trusted, because people are idiots, and also because like the market wants it, and like you know, <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I think James, you, you kind of, uh, I think you had a tweet about this where you were just like, it's man in the mountain energy. Clearly, people are going to do it. USDC exists, WBTC exists, like we're not going to avoid these things. Let's find ways to actually lean into it. Um, yeah. uh, fundamentally, you have to look at the market and say, people are using USDC. They're using WBTC. These are functionally uh, committee-based cross-domain systems. And there's such incredible market demand for these committee-based cross-domain systems that you have to admit that you know people will always use them and there will always be huge amounts of value locked up in them. You can't have this uh, mountain man single validator set for everything. Uh, the market has rejected that. I have a spicy analogy for this, which is, uh, which is that um, 
you know, sex is risky. Uh, it can give you STDs. It can, uh, it can lead to pregnancy. But the solution is not just to tell people don't have sex and be abstinence, abstinent because they're never going to listen to you. <laughs> they're still going to have sex. Um, the solution is to make contraceptives extremely easy uh, to get. So we just need bridge condoms. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think the idea why, I think like, like the logic of, you know, Vitalik saying we should not have a multi-chain ecosystem, just a cross-chain ecosystem. I think the kind of Ethereum roadmap expectation is that like Ethereum will scale kind of like infinitely to some extent using this roll-up centric roadmap. Um, like it will have, you know, very like high data availability capacity. And like, so you can support lots of roll-ups onto that. But I think that's still basically an important part. Like even, even if theoretically speaking, you had, even if you're speaking, you had a chain like Ethereum that could support an infinite number of rollups, an infinite number of data, so you don't need to spin up a new chain. I still think that's kind of missing an important part of um, why we need the multi-chain ecosystem. Um, and that's because, uh, that, that's because that's the solved reason for that, like the most important underrated reason is like these different like clusters of chains have different values, um, not just, both from a technical perspective, but from a also a social perspective. Like maybe you don't want to have it. Maybe you don't want to be like limited to the EVM um, as a settlement layer. Um, like maybe you want to have a parallelizable virtual machine, like Solana, for example. But also you might have different social values. Like look at Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Um, you know, diff different different values there. So I think either way, like we we will have a multi-chain ecosystem. One actually, this uh, I so Mustafa, I definitely agree with you. Um, by the way, I want to couch this in saying I agree with you, but I want to also play devil's advocate because this is this is definitely an important question, um, and I think it gets asked a lot. And the, the question is, if the, the 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 thesis of having a you know the economic security uh, associated with a settlement layer being as high as possible to resist you know sovereign corruption, to resist corporate corruption, if the thesis is you want to make that as high as like make that as secure as 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 you as you can why not just have a single settlement layer? Why not have, you know, you could potentially have diversity at the execution layers and the, the data availability there, but like from a objective world outcome uh, point of view, isn't it much better for security to say, uh, let's just stack all of the security in one network of validators? So that's theoretically possible if, as long as you are happy with the idea that the resource requirements to produce a block or to participate in the, in the production of blocks in that settlement layer could potentially be very high. Um, so like as a thought experiment, like let's say, let's say you want to take Solana, Solana to extreme because Solana's value, for example, is like to, to, to produce blocks in Solana, we're going to have to, you just need very high resource requirements. And we're just going to scale that. We're just going to make it like a web scale blockchain where you have like unlimited resource requirements to produce blocks. Like how far would you take that? Like, let's say in theory, you could take that to something that eventually looks like a MySQL database, like a Web2 MySQL database. And you have like something like Google scale. Um, and you somehow figure out how to like merkleize that database into like a single Merkle root. So it's basically a blockchain. The question is, the question there is, would the community be happy with the fact that the kind of requirements to produce blocks would be so high that you basically need to be like a 
like a corporation to produce those blocks? Um, like the answer might be yes to some extent because if you look at Vitalik's recent uh, like Endgame post, his his entire thesis there is that you will have centralized block production, but decentralized verification using things like data availability sampling and fraud proofs and zk proofs. But then the question is like still how far do you want to take that to an extreme? Uh, like do you, do you really want to take that to an extreme where only like Google level companies can can produce blocks? And if the answer is no then you do need multiple settlement layers and, multi- and a multi-chain ecosystem. Uh, you know, I think at this point, we've, we've basically all agreed that there will be a multi-chain ecosystem with multiple settlement layers. Uh, and I want to bring it back to talking about, you know, modularity in bridges, because that's fundamentally a very difficult thing to reconcile in cross-chain communication. How do you deal with so many different chains, so many different execution environments, and so many different choices for cross-domain communication? If we want to use this intra-cluster communication as much as possible, but we're forced to occasionally use inter-cluster communication, how do we uh, resolve that for any application? Um, The way we've been approaching this at Nomad is to completely abstract the communication mechanism from the application and to have any application be able to enroll any number of communication mechanisms. So the same logical like token bridge application can use IBC or Nomad channels or whatever other inter-domain communication mechanism is available. Uh, we're still in really early stages of rolling this out, and it's very complex in practice. I was wondering if anyone else had uh, strong opinions on what standards in that should look like. Mm, I mean, like everyone's. I think like there's. I know there's IBC, for example, and then there's also like Polkadot standard. Um, but like, would you consider like IBC as a standard? Like for example, as the like at these packet protocol, pa- like for, packet format protocol. Well, uh, for example, I like you know packet format protocols. Um, you know, I like as a developer just getting some message in off the wire and deserializing it locally. And you know, um, I, I guess my question is like, uh, we have to separate the packet protocol layer from the application layer. Um, you know, how does your mm-hmm token bridge handle these packets and how many different channels can it get packets? So we need standards for, you know, enrolling channel, you know, connecting the channel to the application and passing packets from the channel to the application and handling the packet. Uh, And I'm still not sure what those look like in the long run. Like this, uh, we're talking about modularity a lot. What we're uh, this is, you know, what do you do at the layer boundary and what is the correct format for that interface? So is the problem there, if I understand it correctly, like one where, like, if you have different execution environments on your chains, you have to have different, like, libraries to, like, process those packets effectively and, like, to, for example, like, deposit and withdraw assets in those written, like, compatible with those execution environments. Like with the EVM, for example, like for example, you have a with the EVM, you can have a solidity contract, uh, or with like Solana, you have a Solana contract. Am I understanding that correctly? The, the question. Uh, so, suppose that you have 
a uh, consider like a you know, EVM, Ethereum, Evmos, and Osmosis, for example. Uh, this is something that we think about today. Uh, you can connect Ethereum to Evmos with Solidity on both ends. Uh, you can connect Evmos to Osmosis with IBC. Uh, hypothetically, you can connect Osmosis directly to Ethereum uh, with some other channel. Um, how do you reconcile the unified application you know, that you want moving tokens between those three chains and the different uh, communication layers underneath them? Each of those three connections might have different semantics or different layout, uh, and we need to connect them to essentially the same application on top, which might be expressed as a you know a Cosmos module or a Solidity contract. Uh, so there's kind of this you know just interfacing uh, between the application layer and the communication layer is very difficult and kind of not yet standardized. Yeah, I guess I guess the main difficulty there is that uh, like all these chains have different like execution layers, and so like they, like for example, Osmosis does not have does not support like generalizable smart contracts. Um, so like if, hypothetically speaking, like if Osmosis, like let's like if Ethereum or if Ethereum EV, Evmos and Osmosis all supported like general EVM contracts. Then you can probably have the same kind of communication between all those chains uh, if you just like deploy the same s smart contracts in Solidity. Um, so I think that it sounds to me like the bottleneck there is like the fact that you know in Osmosis you've got a hard coded like per, like you have to, you have to use IBC for example if you want to use official bridge. Um, but there's right. no generalizable like smart like environment where you can like add like deploy code into it. Yeah, Cosmosm soon, I hope. Uh, but we we have to like uh, for each communication channel, you have to build it in the local, you know, uh, the local language in the Cosmosm or in the EVM. Uh, and then for each application, you have to connect it to those channels in a predictable, understandable way. And you have to build the application so that it is, you know, abstract over many different potential channel types. Um, this is a huge like challenge, uh, and we are you know kind of slow rolling our approach to it. You know, today we have this very abstract handler pattern where you know some channel calls into the handler uh, with a bunch of raw bytes that have already been authenticated, but we don't know whether that'll continue to work for IBC or for Polkadot's XCMP or for other you know, like communication uh, patterns um, in the future. Uh, so we're, we're still in like very early stages of building out the modular bridge stack and getting the interfaces between all the different modules correct and usable. Yeah, there's also a lot of like other pieces, other open questions that exist around this too. So like, you know, we have we have the, you know, liquidity and messaging layers that that are live and in production and kind of now being like figured out uh, how those how those will interface with each other. But there's also like a lot of open pieces around like, okay, I, I think you need some sort of gateway protocol that allows you to connect between Nomad to other localized communication mechanisms like IBC. And I think you probably need some sort of NAT protocol that allows you to translate addresses between these different systems. Uh, Nomad has 
a concept of, of chain agnostic domains, but we will need to translate those into like localized addresses everywhere um, in order to actually like execute anything to, to any destination contract. Um, so these are these are the kinds of like interesting challenges that remain where there is a similar to the internet itself. There's just like a there's a whole host of uh, of protocols like BGP and things like that that will that will need really will kind of need corollaries in this space. We we will need to have that kind of functionality exist, and we'll need to make sure that that functionality is simple. It's very well specified, and it's it's available for everybody. These are open protocols that people can then start building against, so that we end up so that we we do end up in a in a world where like there is a single path for users to get from, you know, uh, contract on chain A to contract on chain B, even if those two contracts, uh, even if those chains are in totally different clusters. Uh, and if you're having to go through like a, diff a few different hops of, of messaging protocols in between to get there. I'd like to transition a bit here. You guys are already somewhat discussing this. The question is part of the value proposition for modular blockchains is that we can have many different execution environments running side by side. However, having a multitude of execution environments poses difficulties in bridging between those chains. How do we resolve this conflict? Is this where modular bridging protocols come into play? Yeah, um, we're, we're running right now. Uh, and I touched on this a little bit. Uh, for any you know, like good cross-chain communication system, you have to implement it in the language, both ends of the communication channel. Uh, so if you want to connect EVM to Solana, you have to write it in Solidity and in Solana's Rust. Uh, and you have to write, you know, the same application on both ends so that it can so that they can communicate together. Uh, right now, you know, we have planned ahead for that, but we haven't yet done a second implementation of the Nomad protocol. Uh, what we've planned ahead for is, you know, allowing extra space for addresses because, you know, not all chains use 20 byte addresses like Ethereum, most of them use 32. Uh, putting as many things as possible in very agnostic, uh, very general uh, patterns. So for example, we don't use ABI encoding because that's a solidity pattern, not a Solana or a NIR or a Cosmos pattern. Uh, and making the interfaces, you know, as simple as possible. We kind of expect that we're, as we spread out to more chains, we're going to run into more and more things that we neglected to consider in the initial design. Uh, so real excited about all of the fun uh, bug fixing and resolution we have to do for the protocol in the future. So I think um, like one thing that might or might not help with this in the future. Um, so G, uh, so um, Optimism recently released this uh, like inter interactive fault proofing system called Canon. And what they've done there is they've like implemented um, like a MIPS machine on in the EVM, and then you can you, they've compiled like Go code into MIPS, and so like this MIPS machine kind of acts as like a virtual machine on the on the Ethereum virtual machine, and you can you can compile arbitrary like Go code and other code potentially Cosm Wasm code uh, or, or like Wasm code um, into MIPS, so that, that so in theory you could potentially run any kind of like execution environment. On top of the EVM as a virtual machine, um, like so in in the same way, like you could run 
like a very like a Docker container with a different operating system um, on your like own computer to run other applications that might not be supported on your machine, instead of having to necessarily like write rewrite the application in every single like language or like a execution environment that needs to be supported. Um, so that could potentially help in the future with like preventing the need to write multiple code for for bridging in multiple different execution environments. Yeah, um, Optimism's uh, MIPS machine, you know, kind of based on Arbitrum's uh, earlier Wasm machine doing the same thing. Uh, you know, these uh, really open up a lot of possibilities for more direct, optimistic, full verification of remote chains in the EVM. Um, I'm excited to see these productionized over the next probably like two to five years. Uh, it's going to take a while, but they're going to do really cool things in the long run. I want to begin taking Q&A from the audience pretty soon here. So if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. Before we take that first question, uh, Arjun, I wanted to ask you something specific. Can you explain for the audience what is optimistic bridging and what makes it different from most other bridges that operate today? And why is Connext so bullish on this? Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure James is probably going to give a better explanation than I can, but um, I'll try to give like uh, the best explanation that I can. And then James, let me know if there's anything that I missed or that, that is important that I've missed. Um, um, so uh, last year we wrote about something called the interoperability trilemma which is that there's, there's at least with, with where the market was at the time, every single interoperability project that existed kind of fell into one of three categories. And that was either, it was basically came down to who is verifying the system, who is actually uh, responsible for deciding what data gets relayed between chains and how that data gets relayed. Um, and, uh, and there were three, three real options there. The, the first was native verification, which is um, you know, uh, the chain's own validator set or the receiving chain's own validator set is responsible for, for validating the data that actually gets posted to it. Um, and this is this is you know uh, things like uh, well there's, there's two options here there's there's things like XEMP where you have uh, you know the the core validator set of Polkadot is responsible for um, for validating the data that goes across chains um, or you have things like Cosmos uh, and IBC where uh, the receiving chain validator set is is like running a light client of the sending chain and uh, and then uh, validating like the block header um, of of something that comes gets passed through it. Um, then you have externally verified systems, uh, which are, which as I, I talked about before, are like multi-sig, MPC uh, systems. Layer zero is another example of this, um, where really you just have like a third-party set of validators doing this um, that has its their their completely own set of security trade-offs um, that is different from either of the two chains. Um, this one adds a lot of trust assumptions. In some some cases, it could be okay. So like one case where it could potentially be okay is if like the security of that third-party validator set is much better than the security of either of the chains. In that case, it's totally fine. Um, but of course, it can be hard to really figure that out. And uh, and in it, for at least any of the larger clusters like Ethereum, um, you're realistically not going to end up in a situation where your uh, interoperability protocol has better economic security than Ethereum does. It's just very, very highly unlikely at this stage. Um, and then the last one is uh, is kind of what Connects does currently, 
which is local local verification. So you instead of having this like big end party problem where uh, you have some set of people that are responsible for passing arbitrary data between chains, you do something like an atomic swap. You have you isolate to two people, um, the two parties, and then you have them just communicate with each other. And uh, taking a two-party communication mechanism and making that trustless is something that we do actually understand quite well. Um, and it is quite easy to make that uh, as at least very, very reasonably trust minimized more than most other options out there. Um, now the, the assumption at the time when we wrote that post was that there was this trade-off space that exists between these things. And you, you could really only have like two out of the three core properties of like trust minimization, uh, uh, generalizability, which means uh, being able to pass around arbitrary data um, and, it, and what we called extensibility, which means the ability to take this this core product and like copy pasta it across many different chains, um, which unfortunately with like, you know, like client header relays, things like that, it's not it's not very easy to do because you have to build custom implementations. Um, the reason that we're really, really bullish about optimistic verification is it's the first sort of it's the first like approach to interoperability that is genuinely novel uh, beyond the, the, the three prongs of the trilemma that we have explored in the past. And, uh, and we think it's interesting because fundamentally it changes the trade-off space so that rather than having to tr choose between, um, you know, being trust minimized, being uh, uh, generalizable or being extensible, you are able to actually get all three of those things fairly easily. And instead you choose this other trade-off, which is latency. Now latency is bad from a user perspective, but from like an institutional perspective or from a security perspective, or even from like just an implementation design perspective, it's really not a huge problem. And uh, latency is something that we can fix. Latency, uh, you know, the, 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 the march of technology is very, very good at making things faster. Um, we're very, very good at optimizing on speed uh, and on cost. We're very bad at optimizing on some of these other core properties like security um, just through engineering work. Um, and that's the, the reason that we're extremely bullish on, on uh, the optimistic verification model is that in combination with the way that Connects works currently, we can get pretty darn close to what looks like a perfect model. Um, of course, there are still instances where you'll have the 30 minute nomad latency. But aside from that, aside from the rare instances where that happens, and most of those are like DAO facing use cases, institutional facing use cases, aside from those cases, uh, you have a system that is actually gets the best of all worlds. Um, I hope I explained that well. I can definitely answer more questions about it in the question section. And also, James, if I missed anything, let me know. I want to take Q&A. Um, I see some cool names here. Uh, Justin Drake joined. Uh, Angela Liu, DeFi Frog, Shri Ram, Kanan. Uh, would love to field some questions, but we'll go with um, Seg. As the first question, let's see if he can join here. Seg, if you can hear yeah, us, I can please hear you. It go takes, ahead and ask your question. Yeah, yeah, it just takes a couple of seconds to connect, so for future uh, attendees as well. Um, I just had a general question for whoever wants to answer it about um, a more uh, modular blockchain world. One was I, I heard Arjun speak about uh, the liquidity layer. Um, fragmented liquidity is probably going to be a pretty big issue uh, in, the, in the future. And one thing, one solution that I can see potentially is to have an application-specific chain or roll-up, for example, on Celestia that specifically deals with liquidity that talks to all the other roll-ups that are trying to do general-purpose stuff. 
Do you see this as the solution to liquidity fragmentation? And also, do you see a, a world where you have more application-specific blockchains than general-purpose blockchains? Because I guess you can, you can design a, a, a virtual machine that's more efficient for some applications than others. And you see, do you see them talking to each other more than you just have a single dumb general-purpose computer trying to process everything, kind of like CPU versus GPU type uh, thing. Anyone who wants to answer can answer. Thank you. Uh, I, you know, I don't see uh, fragmentation going away anytime soon. Um, there really aren't many good solutions to this. Adding new application-specific uh, AMM chains or stable swaps between them uh, really just embeds the fragmentation deeper in the ecosystem. And adding new domains to try to resolve it just provides more routes for uh, fragmentation to creep in. Um, you know, fragmentation is a function of having many domains and many bridges between them. Uh, and I don't think that we can prevent that from happening or, uh, you know, unspill the milk on this one. Uh, for, the, for Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was going to say there is there is an interesting incentive though, which is that, um, so so basically, uh, like just to, to quick take a quick step back. So fragmentation exists because um, you know you have uh, you know potentially five or six different bridges that are all connecting the same chain, producing their own like uh, flavored asset, and that nobody has really quite decided which asset is canonical. Nobody's been able to like take the time to figure out which asset is canon canonical. The chains themselves are of course trying to be agnostic. Um, uh, if, if they can, or in some cases they don't, and they say like, no, this is, this is the right bridge. Um, but even then these are open systems. So you do end up having people coming in deploying stuff anyway, um, and giving you the wrong assets. And that's a giant pain for, for users. Um, uh, I, I agree that like, it's a problem and it's going to be a problem. I think there is something that's kind of interesting though, which is that like having a stable swap, um, the one, the one piece of incentivization here, which is interesting, is that like having a stable swap necessarily means, or even having some sort of like swap chain necessarily means that you are going to have uh, one bridge, which is the, the one that is canonical, ends up becoming, over time, becoming the embedded version. Because um, if you have a stable swap, every single version of an asset, except for the one that you're swapping into, is going to have slippage um, uh, as, as a fundamental part of transferring. So the, the assumption is that if you're, again, you know, obviously markets are messy and it's unclear if and when this would happen, but the assumption is that if we are heading towards a world where you know, everybody try, starts trying to optimize on price, everybody starts trying to optimize on slippage and user experience, um, there is this really interesting thing, which is that you can go to like asset issuers and say, hey, um, why don't you just like explicitly tell everybody this is the officially supported asset um, and if they use this version of the officially supported asset, they can transfer it between chains without any slippage at all. Um, I think that's, that's an interesting economic level lever. I'm, we're not sure yet what, whether it's going to work, but it is interesting. Uh, one of the, one of the fun, fun side effects of stable swaps is that, uh, when you have a stable swap between like three or four different fragmented versions of the same asset, 
typically that stable swap is going to incentivize creation of uh, more fragments, first of all, to go into meta pools. And it's going to incentivize the minting of each of those fragments at about the same rate. Uh, so your ideal stable swap pool with three fragments is going to be 33% of each one. So by introducing this additional you know, mechanism to try to fix fragmentation, you're, you're going to end up incentivizing, you know, like a higher TVL for all of the fragments. Um, and you're going to end up with a huge stable swap pool that exists just to resolve the fragmentation issue that <laughs> you kind of created with the stable swap pool in the first place. Um, so as long as you know stable swaps are still incentivizing liquidity at the rate they are, I think this is going to remain true. And as long as you can make money by launching a stable swap, I think we're going to see fragmentation uh, get worse. I'd like to quickly interject here for our next question. Justin Drake, please go ahead and ask. Oh, hi there. Um... I, I was listening to the to the Bankless episode today uh, on, on Celestia with, with, with Nick, um, and um, I love the name Celestium, and I guess I have a couple of questions about Celestiums. Um, one is, would it be fair to say that the security of, the, of a Celestium is kind of, at best, a, a, a degraded version of, of Celestia? And the, the reason being that when you have a, a settlement layer, for example, Ethereum, that settlement layer can't do data availability sampling um, it, itself. Um, and so basically, you, you, you lose data availability sampling as, as, as a security layer uh, of, for your Celestium. And I guess my, my second question is that um, Nick mentioned that the, the Celestium validators can make attestations, and these attestations can go on the settlement. A layer, and there would be some form of slashing if there's some incorrect attestations. And I guess my question is, how does this uh, slashing mechanism work? Yeah, so, um, like, first of all, it's definitely the case that Celestiums do not have the same data availability guarantees as rollups for the reason that you stated, which is that the Ethereum chain cannot do data availability sampling of third party chains including Celestia. And so if you want if, if, if to, if you want Ethereum, if you want Ethereum smart contract to check data availability on a third party chain, um, you have to use a committee based tech assumption where some committee signs the, the block uh, to attest to, to its availability, kind of like a data availability committee. But the difference with that, like, you can think of Celestia as like the, the data as a data availability committee with crypto economic assumptions. Because in Celestia, the data availability committee is the kind of validator set of Celestia, and why this is better than a, like a standard like normal like uh, like closed data availability committee, um, because you have this crypto economic uh, like assumption where because Celestia itself is kind of like a normal blockchain used by other like used by other applications, and the, the purpose of Celestia isn't solely to provide data availability for some specific Ethereum rollup, it's just a standard blockchain in its own right, and with 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 a, with a proof of stake, you know, validator set, and so on and so forth. And because Celestia has data availability sampling, and we have data availability sampling like clients, 
so that if a block producer produces an invalid or attests to a block that's not available, the light clients can detect that. The light clients in Celestia can detect that thanks to data availability sampling. And they can halt the chain and then slash the stake of the validators that signed that invalid block. So you can kind of think of it as a, a, a you can think, you can kind of think of it as a more like secure like a slightly more secure version of a plasma um, or a validium, in the sense that you have this crypto economic security. I would I actually like to. Oh, go go ahead. No, I was just kind of summarizing in my own words, which is basically that you're using the data value sampling as a mechanism for the light clients to enforce the slashing. Yeah. Of the, the committee of validators. Exactly. That's the plan. Yeah, I'd also I'd also like to add some some nuance here, uh, which is that most committee based bridges, not just most, but like all the committee based bridges uh, that have been deployed so far essentially don't have slashing. Uh, which is why analyzing this new thing where there's actually a way of penalizing the the committee, uh, in this case, the Celestia validator set through slashing if they do, in fact, misbehave, essentially, you know, either making an invalid block or equivocating or something like that. Uh, there's kind of this subtle, this subtle thing in the analysis, which is that... Uh, if you can, if you model it, uh, where the cost to corrupt the bridge is simply the cost, to, uh, the cost of two thirds of the stake, because you know, say 100% of the misbehaving validator stake will get burned, so you know, at least two thirds have to be malicious. So the cost is two thirds of of the stake, which you know could be in the billions of dollars or whatever. Who knows? So this would already be an enormous cost, but you know, if you say that's the cost of corrupting the bridge, that's true if there's no slashing. If there is slashing, things get a bit subtle because you can say, what is the cost of corrupting, let's say, Ethereum today? What's the cost of corrupting Ethereum for, from the perspective of an Ethereum application? You could say that it's you know, 51% of the hash power. My proof of work is a bit weird. Let's, the, we consider proof of stake land, right? You know, two thirds of the ETH2 stake uh, to corrupt the Ethereum chain. But that's not exactly true because if two thirds of the Ethereum validator set were to try to make an invalid block, everyone would simply reject it. So like the cost of actually making something invalid is infinite. It doesn't actually matter how much is actually at stake in terms of dollar value, like the actual cost of corrupting the chain is infinite because it cannot be corrupted. Uh, so, so in that context, uh, it's not exactly, uh, it's not exactly like you can't analyze it in the same way that you can analyze uh, you know, classical committees because there's this notion that you can slash something, you can slash the, you can slash the committee out of protocol, you can slash them uh, in in a way that you can't do it with uh, regular uh, committee-based bridges. Uh, so this isn't really like presenting a conclusion or anything, but it's more that there's some nuance here that is not a simple analysis of, you know, here's X amount of money, you can corrupt the bridge. Here's X amount of money, you can corrupt the L1. There's some 
there's some subtle differences here because you should be modeling the cost of corrupting an L1 as essentially infinite. Okay, that's all yes. I had to say. Justin, I'll give you another opportunity if you want to say something before we move on to the others. No, that's all good. Thank you so much for the answers. Thanks. Sri Ram, we'll go with you next. Um, hi. Uh, uh, thank you. Actually, I want to pick up on a thread uh, started by Justin here. Uh, trying to understand the crypto economics of slashing when data is unavailable. It seems there are fundamental differences between uh, what happens when uh, you have something invalid, when a committee signs an invalid message, versus when the data is unavailable. When the data is unavailable and a two-third majority committee is actually uh, signing a block in favor of this unavailable block, it seems it's quite difficult to actually enforce slashing, even if light nodes are observing this, because uh, that committee could temporarily withhold data and then later reveal it. And I think the point that John Adler just made on uh, the cost being infinite is the cost is infinite to fool one of those light clients. But really, as this uh, uh, the Twitter space is really secure bridging in a modular world, you could still fool the other side of the bridge because the other side of the bridge is Ethereum or something else, which simply cannot parse anything more than whether there is a two-third committee signature. So the broader question is, how do we enforce slashing for data availability? Because that's, while it's perceivable, there's also ways in which you can hide data, withhold data for some time, and then later reveal it as well as how do you uh, protect it across a pitch? Thank you. Yeah, so with, with this attack that you mentioned where like, you can like you can, you can withhold data temporarily um, and then release it later. Uh, so in Celestia, there's this weak subjectivity assumption, which is kind of embedded into the Tendermint uh, protocol anyway. Uh, so because we use proof of stake, so there's this kind of like on there's this three week unbonding period in the Cosmos proof of stake protocol, and and so we rely we rely on this weak subjectivity assumption, which basically says that like if you kind of go offline for three weeks, um, then in order to kind of sync the chain from scratch, you have to ask a friend to let you know what's like the true like the trusted or true hash. Of the network, uh, the block height of the network is with the with the block hash, and so which means like if a that's the first thing. So which means like firstly, if a block producer like uh, withholds a block, um, and then that client sees not available, but then but then the chain somehow moves forward, and then actually releases the historic block in in four weeks, that will that 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 block will still be ignored, even though it's available. Uh, in the future, uh, because of this weak subjectivity, weak subjectivity assumption. But secondly, oh, the second thing. So, were you going to say something? No, uh, go on. I think I was yeah. going to say that the weak subjectivity period therefore bounds the period of withholding. Yeah, that's that's the first thing. But but the second thing is that um, the because te tendermint is a is a fork free protocol, which means that. If like the, the the validator set misbehaves and forks the chain and creates two conflicting block headers, 
then that's considered to be kind of like a safety failure. And what happens is that all the nodes and clients in the network will simply halt the chain. And so like they will stop processing new blocks and abort like the node. And then you have to kind of go back to social consensus um, in order to kind of recover the chain. Uh, which means like if you have if if the if the block producer has withheld the latest block, um you can't really kind of proceed to the next block until that block is released. So and, and so there's there isn't really any because there's no concept of forking, there isn't really any concept of like a historic block on a on a on a on a different fork of the chain that's longer has now become available and now that's the real that's the real fork of the chain. Sri Ram, any follow up to that? Yep. Uh, it seems, therefore, that all I need to do to attack the chain is I get a two third committee, sign a block, withhold the block, and then I have a three week period in which I can release that block. I don't produce any conflicting blocks, I just withhold that block. So the cost of actually executing this attack, rather than being infinite, is actually zero. But that would violate the weak subjectivity assumption. Uh, only if I don't release the block af within three weeks. So, okay, if you if you release the block within three weeks, but why 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 would why would that violate the assumption? Be that that's isn't that isn't that um like why does that violate the why does that violate the protocol as long as that's like the latest block? It just means all that all that means is that it takes three weeks to finalize that block. But the block is yeah, still an optimistic roll-up on Ethereum, nobody could contest that block if I keep the contesting period less than the week subjectivity period. Oh, I see. Yeah, so in, in which case the week subjectivity period, uh, well, the challenge period will have to be longer than the week than the week subjectivity period. That's right. So it seems like fundamentally yeah. the data availability finality is over this week subjectivity period. And all crypto economics is relative to that. Yeah, I think maybe John has something to add as well. Uh, I would have to think about uh, your question a bit. It's a bit unclear exactly uh, what your model is. So if you could ask us offline, uh, that would be great. Absolutely. Sri Ram, thank you so much for your question. We will now move to Angelfish. Uh, please ask your question. Hello, everybody. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about how a modular world would give rise to things such as cross-chain MEV and thinking about um, how the most popular way that it could manifest would be in terms of multi-domain arbitrage. But this could serve as a centralizing force because people that could would could capitalize on this arbitrage opportunity would either have to have money on two chains or three chains where the arbitrage opportunity is and swap them at the same time or the sequencers or like would be incentivized to collude to get these opportunities so for nomad and connect i'm curious whether you guys modularizing bridging could be an avenue to democratize cross-chain arbitrage opportunities specifically and for Celestia, I'm curious how, in a more general sense, how you guys deal with ordering and could 
data availability layers be a good hub for somebody like Flashbots to build on top of to enable multi-chain block building? It's a really good question. Um, so, wait, can you hear me? Yes, yes. we can. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, there's on the on the interop side, um, there's a couple of really important points here. Um, so so uh, there is arbitrage in general as as a space uh, cross chain arbitrage particularly, and there's there's some really interesting stuff there. Um, but there's two things that I, I think are are kind of like potentially problematic. Um, the first is you talk about cross chain MEV, which is like um, allowing front runners to basically front runners uh, extracting value from a transaction that goes across chains. Um, uh, you know, uh, for for example, say you do something like in a single transaction, swap on Uniswap on Ethereum, uh, bridge those funds, and then swap on uh, some other you know uh, Dex on uh, Ethmos. Um, and uh, because this is happening in an asynchronous paradigm, it is possible for some front runner to see the that the transaction happened on the sending chain, um, and then like. Uh, front run the transaction, see it, like see the event that happened on sending chain, front run the transaction on the receiving chain. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of ways to get around that. Um, one thing that we've explored is potentially like, uh, you know, the, the data that goes across chains to call the receiving chain contract, encrypt that and then decrypt it. Um, uh, you would you would basically decrypt, you would, you'd have some sort of like, uh, you'd, yeah, it's, it's messy. You'd have to like encrypt the data that is being emitted in the event and then decrypt it on the receiving chain and then have like push that into the contract. You would, then you would still be subject to like on-chain MEV, but you would not be subject to like this cross-chain front running attack. But that one is, is super messy. And I think, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of ways to get around it. The other one that's even more messy is, uh, is actually the, the paradigm that is currently being followed by things like Synapse. Um, and this, this is actually where I think a, a, the bigger problem rises, which is um, a, a situation where you actually have an AMM itself that straddles multiple chains. Um, and so you have a liquidity pool on one chain and then a liquidity pool on another chain, and then you are determining pricing between those two chains based on uh, you know, the size of those liquidity pools when a transfer occurs. And the fundamental problem there is that you're introducing asynchrony to this, to this model that is not designed to be asynchronous. Um, there is a, uh, there's a kind of two approaches to building distributed systems. There's a uh, you know the the approach of of like uh, you know having asynchrony in your distributed system, and then there's like uh, what are called CRDTs, where you just have like reconciliation happen uh, after the fact in a in a conflict free way. Um, and I, I'm I'm kind of bearish on the whole concept of like let's build an AMM that has like pools on different chains uh, for exactly this reason, because as as is currently happening with Synapse, it is extremely possible for uh, people to just manipulate the price of the AMM itself directly uh, as it go as like liquidity goes across chains by by simply sending transactions in the opposite direction uh, and front running users. Um, yeah. So one more one more future avenue that we're really really interested in. Uh, right now, MEV largely relies on these miners running specialized nodes that uh, you know the flashbots nodes uh, because cross-chain uh, communication is asynchronous, uh, building that kind of thing for it is much more difficult and more complex, but it's still possible. Um, a lot of these tendermint zones, for example, share big chunks of the validator set. 
And hypothetically, those validators can use their uh, leeway in the Tendermint protocol to bring those chains into something resembling synchrony that only the validator can access. Uh, so because Tendermint is fork free and because it has one block finality, uh, they can, in effect, if they are validating both of those chains under certain circumstances, bring those chains into synchrony, make transactions on both chains in a synchronous manner, and have whatever effect they want to. Uh, so we're really interested in this in the future. It is a much more long-term uh, research avenue. And again, it relies on running custom node software on dozens of validators across dozens of chains. Mustafa, John, anything to add? on Angelfish's question. Nope, James gave a pretty good answer. Okay, cool. Well, I think um, we can wrap up here. Uh, James, uh, Arjun, you guys are our guests. We will leave you with closing thoughts. Arjun, why don't you go first? Uh, as it relates to the modular blockchain thesis and uh, most of the stuff we talked about, what are your, your closing thoughts on this Twitter space and what would you like to leave the audience with? Um, oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, uh, there's so many closing thoughts. Um, so I, I think, like, modularity is a term that is probably going to be used more and more as we, as we like, explore this space. Um, it does seem to be the direction that a lot of... Uh, that a lot of decentralized application, decentralized network development is going because I think people are beginning to understand that it is better to um, have hyper-specialization at each layer of the stack. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I would love to see more people kind of getting involved in that research and getting involved in this conversation. Um, it's, it's fantastic that like we have Celestia here. It's fantastic that like the modular thesis is, is playing out really well in, in like uh, a bunch of different ecosystems. Um, so I think just getting more researchers involved is certainly going to make it much more, um, is going to help us get to solutions faster. Um, yeah, James. also, thanks for having us. <laughs> James, you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, uh, the great part of the modular blockchain thesis and modular bridges, we get to specialize, we get to isolate things in their own domains, and we get to you know, work at the boundaries. Uh, the whole project of bridging and the whole project of cross-chain communication is to work at the boundaries between these different ecosystems to reconcile their differences and build something coherent on top of them that interacts with them directly. Uh, that's what I really enjoy doing. And that's what like keeps me coming back to it for so many years as uh, this ability to work with so many systems uh, learn so many things about each execution environment in each chain, and then to bring them into practice and write code for them. So if that sounds fun to you, definitely uh, reach out. All right, everyone, we'll conclude at this. Thank you so much. Uh, one last piece, Celestia is hosting the Modular Summit at DevConnect in Amsterdam uh, next month. Um, and I believe Anatoly from Solana will be in attendance uh, with a one-on-one -on -one with Mustafa. It will be exciting, and there will be more on Twitter for that. Thank you so much for your time, James, Arjun. We'll see you guys when we see you guys. Thanks for having us. Mustafa, John, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much.